What's up, bingers? Hey, thanks for joining me again on another glorious hump day, and thank you for all the reviews and social media shares. The podcast has been growing like crazy lately, and that's thanks to all of you. And if you haven't done so already, I would really appreciate it if you could take a few seconds, hop onto iTunes, and leave us a five-star rating and review. I would love to keep the momentum going and just keep making True Crime Binge more visible to more people. And that way, we can continue to bring you great guests every week like the one that I have for you today. She has put a new spin on the old concept of short-form true crime podcasting. She's filing FOIA requests, interviewing people involved in the cases, and presenting each week's case with more information and detail than you ever thought you could take in in a single episode. She is the host and creator of the Court Junkie podcast, Jillian Jalali. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Jillian, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. We got through our our usual daily technical difficulties, and I think that we're we're rolling smoothly here. Yes, yes. So I have to warn you, I was I was up with a sick kid all night, so so I'm a little bit of oh, no. zombie like today. That's that's kind of why. <laughs> oh, how many kids do you have? I only have one, and she's three, and oh, she has developed a quite age. a cough that is like keeping her up all night. So I'm sleeping with her. That's going around so much. I mean, it, and it's bad because, you know, it's in the midst of this, like, new COVID variant that's going around, too. But then there's also this, like, weird summer cold that. Yes. I have uh, my nephew had. I just went through the same thing. had this, like, horrible cough. And they went in and tested him. And they're like, no, it's just this bad summer cough going around. But it's yep. like a deep chest cough. Oh, it's brutal. And for a three-year-old, you know. So, yeah, that's it's it's hard. But, yeah, it's it's interesting because nowadays when I when someone gets sick, it's like your immediate thought is, oh, no. It's COVID, you know, right. so we took her to get tested immediately, negative, mm-hmm. thankfully. And then, yeah, it's like, and then we keep hearing about other friends, kids who are coming up with some sort of sickness too. So something's going around aside from COVID. Yeah. And we're not, and we're not far away from each other. So I think it's kind of the same because you're, you're in Chicago, right? Yeah. I'm actually now right outside Chicago. I'm about 20 or so minutes right outside. Yeah. And see, I'm in Michigan, but I'm like very southwest corner, like literally just right around the bottom of the lake from from you guys. Oh, where at? Um, are you familiar with the area at all? Do you know? I'm So I'm familiar. My parents used to have a lake house in Sister Lakes and then in Decatur. Okay. okay. Yeah. And I'm familiar with like so, Paw Paw area. Sure. Yeah. So all yeah. of that, you would drive right past me to get to that stuff. Oh, okay. So I'm nice. In, I'm in Buchanan now in the Niles area. I used to be in Bridgman, which is right on I-94, which is probably... Yeah. The way you would take to get to all that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I used to get off on exit thirty all the time, which is probably right past, right past you. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Great area. I love that. I also I used to love like St. Joe's and like going up by the lake and stuff. It's really oh yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yep. St. Joe's is very close to us. That's that's where I, I've been trying to this summer spend my weekends out with the out with the boat on Lake Michigan and St. Joe. Oh, it's nice. like a little. Little dirty secret is the beach in St. Joe is uh, it's beautiful and yeah. it's packed and there's nowhere to park. And so when we want to go to the beach, we put the we launch our boat and then go around the piers and then come into the beach from outside. Oh. Also, when you do that, you're allowed to have a cooler full of beer and your own music playing in the boat <laughs> where you, you can't have that on the beach. Let's be friends, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little life hack for anybody. Uh, if, you, if you own a boat, and by the way, I don't own like a yacht. It's a fishing boat, but we still yeah. use that to go around and hey, we just throw works. anchor out in five foot of water, and that's where we party at the beach when we oh, party at the beach. So fun, so fun. Yeah, that's a way better setup than what we have here. So I have no boats. When we go to the beach, you know, we're just a lot of times we can't even go because of the water quality. <laughs> right over yeah. here. So, but yeah. Yeah, it depends which way is the wind blowing. Some days we get the. Sometimes we have the same thing when the nasty stuff is blowing our direction from you <laughs> yeah. guys. Yeah. So, have you, are you uh, born and raised Chicago? Where are you from? 
I am uh, just southwest of the city. And and actually, if you ever come this way, you probably pass the Swaparama Flea Market. Um, uh-huh. It's a it's a little town called Elsip. Also home. Oh, I know where Elsip to, is. Yeah. So that's where I was born and raised. Um, lived there pretty much my whole life. And then I decided to go to San Diego for college, which my dad was mortified about just because he's like, you picked the furthest spot in the continental U.S. basically <laughs> to go to school. Um, and then I ended up moving back home, you know, lived in the city for quite a while, did that whole thing. And then, you know, when you get married and get pregnant, obviously, you then kind of trek on over to the suburbs. So that's where we are now. Get out of the big city. How long have you been out in the suburbs? About three years now. Yeah. yeah. So it was like well, lines up right with I got pregnant. We were like, OK, can't do the city anymore. And then moved out to the suburbs. A lot safer. So are you uh, Cubs or White Sox? A White Sox fan. Technically. Uh, well, technically, gross. because that's where I'm from, and I feel like I have to say that, but I, I know more about the Cubs, and I would rather go to a Cubs game, admittedly. It's just way more fun. Better area. And isn't that so messed up? So my wife and I, are, we're going to yeah. Milwaukee in um, uh, September, and we're going to catch the Cubs playing the the Brewers while we're there. We were talking oh, about nice. like how like, Wrigley Field is sold out. It's super expensive. The Cubs are terrible. Like, they're, they're never in the White the White Sox are like leading their division mm-hmm. and they have a beautiful ballpark to go to. And, yeah. and still, I think it's gross. I always, all my friends that like the White Sox, I call them the dirty Southsiders. But so you're a dirty <laughs> Southsider. I am, yes. <laughs> but I guess I'm like a transplant now to the, to the North side. So, but. right up in the, up in the <laughs> suburbs. Uh, what'd you yeah. go to school for in San Diego? Or did you say San Diego or San Francisco? Uh, San Diego. I went to okay. school for broadcast journalism. Okay. Uh, yes. Did you did you work in that field before you got into podcasting? So I actually had a pretty um, not so great experience at an internship that I was working at in San Diego. It was like my final year there. I was an intern mm-hmm. at a news station. I don't think it's it's around anymore, but it was called KSWB in San Diego. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, you know, they would be short on reporters, so they would like literally take off your intern badge. And like send you out with a photog and give you like a little bit of information about what story you would be covering. But you would basically be pretending to be, you know, a reporter. And one of the times that they did that, I it, it was a story of the first Afghan-American who was taken hostage in Afghanistan. So it was a very mm-hmm. sad, you know, kind of tragic, scary thing. And I was sent out to his hometown, which I believe was in Escondido at the time. And I had to go to this pizza shop where he worked and try to, you know, get a feel for how his like friends and family were handling this news. And so I'm, you know, just a college kid, all dressed up, trying to like appear as though I'm a reporter. I have a photographer with me. And I go into the pizza shop and people are throwing things at me that, you know, they just obviously don't want to talk to the press at this point because they've just found out this absolutely horrible news. I think it was like just breaking you know, they're terrified for his life. I'm the last person, you know, they want to see. And, you know, it was then I realized that maybe this is not for me. <laughs> but obviously, <laughs> I was, you know, well into, you know, on my way to graduating. So I got my degree in broadcast journalism, moved back to Chicago, worked at a few print publications in the area, kind of decided that that wasn't really for me either. I wasn't just in, I wasn't really in love with that medium. And so eventually I switched over to marketing. Okay. And then, and you used, from what I understand, you used your marketing skills to help build the Court Junkie podcast. Which yes. It was now a massive player in the space. Yeah. Well, thank you. So basically, I, you know, I was working this, um, I started off, first of all, I started off working at a law firm actually in an, in an administrative position. And then they moved me mm-hmm. over to a marketing position. And then, you know, you kind of climb the ladder that way in different companies and things like that. And so where I, where I ended up was at a tech startup in the city of Chicago, and I was the marketing director there. And I would be sitting in my office and I would be, you know, watching trials because this has always been like my passion in my office. You know, like I'd have a, a tab open to like the Casey Anthony trial, you know, while mm-hmm. I would be working. And so I decided in 2013 to start a website, courtjunkie.com. Where I would basically, you know, use that as an outlet for my passion. So 
I covered unsolved cases, missing persons cases, and then trials as well. And so I ran that for quite a while. And then in 2016, I decided to leave my marketing position and I lined up a bunch of freelance jobs that I was, I think I had three of them that I was working week to week. And I decided to get into the podcast space. And I had first heard of a podcast. My husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, you know, was like, oh, we were on an airplane going somewhere. And he was like, you should really, instead of listening to music, you should listen to a podcast. I had never heard of a podcast before. So I was like, oh, what's that? And so he started me off with cereal, like, you know, everybody does. Right. And, you know, not only was I super captivated by the story of cereal, but I just completely fell in love with that medium. I was like, this is Mm -hmm. perfect for me. You know, like at the time I lived in downtown Chicago, so I was walking everywhere. So you just, you know, put on your headphones and, you know, go to the grocery store and walk back. And it's just, you know, it's, it's great. You know, anytime you're in your car, you can listen to podcasts. So I fell in love with the medium and decided to throw my hat in the ring. So I was like, what if I turned courtjunkie.com into a podcast? And so I did. Yeah, and then what was that process? Because you have, you have some broadcast journalism background, but I'm assuming, did you have any audio editing background? Like, how did you, I'm always curious, like, how did someone learn? Because I learned how to make a podcast on YouTube in 2015 from yeah. some like 15 year old kid on YouTube is like, this is how you do it. That is exactly correct. That's exactly what I did in like some old <laughs> school, like Google articles, like maybe like Yahoo Answers mm-hmm. or something like that, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah, and then that's why. You know, when I brought up GarageBand earlier, that's how I started because I was like, oh, okay. Like, I think I watched like a video, like how to, you know, make a podcast using GarageBand. I was like, okay, well, I've got a Uh laptop. That's a free app that I've got on my on here. I could just, you know, I could use that. And so I got um, and I remember my first microphone was the ATR, I think, 2100, which was Uh like, you know, pretty, you know, relatively cheap compared to the other microphones out there. Got that on Amazon. It arrived in, you know, a couple days. And just hooked it up and started it that way. And at the time, you know, there weren't, there were obviously true crime podcasts, but there weren't many. You know, like the big players in the space, obviously you, Sword and Scale, Generation Y, but Mm -hmm. there weren't many that actually like looked at like the legal side of things, like the actual trials, which is what I was particularly interested in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a great time to enter the the space. And do you have... I have a cabinet out there that is like my boneyard of microphones because I did the same thing. I think I had that same mic, that same AT mic. And then like over yes. over the years, you like slowly like oh, start yeah. upgrading and changing until you find the one you like. Yeah. Okay. So the funny thing is I just switched over like not even a year ago. Like that microphone got me through years. Now different because it, it kind of craps out on you after a certain right. amount of time. It's an excellent microphone, but it just the longevity of it for me at least you know, wasn't that great. So I went through like four of them, I think. But yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I can't throw them away. I, I literally have them also. So yeah. Yeah. Same thing. I've got some sure SM7Bs out there. I've yeah. got my, all, my, all, the, all the variety of the AT mics out there. That's yeah. It's yeah. funny. Everybody, our, our, our experience is very, very similar. And I was, so, so for me, I didn't have, I was running um, PCs then instead of Mac. So GarageBand wasn't an option. So I ended up with for years, years and years, we used Audacity, which is a free yeah. download from the internet. But that was the, the website I or the YouTube video I watched from that little kid that was teaching me how to do a podcast. He's like, download Audacity. You can record there, edit, upload it to this website. Uh, and we still, um, it's we use other stuff too, but, but Mike still edits in Audacity, which is the free software we were yeah. using six years ago when we started. Hey, it's good. I actually did. I have used Audacity before, especially to pull like audio from um, like online and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, and so you had, you at least you had a format like put together already because you had your website. Was it like, was the website like, like just like almost like a blog or what were you yeah. doing on the court? Yeah, website? it was really just like a blog. It was cases that I was following and that I was interested in. And I'd kind of just like recap it. I wasn't doing any, you know, legwork or like investigative work or anything like that. I just, you know, for the trial portion, I would literally just be watching trials and like taking notes on it. And then I'd, you know, provide like kind of a recap of it. Um, mm-hmm. I was like really interested in just researching things online. So I'd get my hands on court documents and, you know, like things like that. And um, when I decided to to go with court junk or 
turn Court Junkie into a podcast, I decided to focus on the trial part of it because already there were a lot of true crime podcasts out there, or at least, you know, a lot of really great ones. So I was like, I don't know that I could really add anything in in that sense. So I decided to focus more on the trial aspect of it, which is how the Court Junkie podcast was born. And basically, I don't cover any unsolved cases. I typically, you know, if I if I do cover a case, it kind of has to have gone through the court system or is going through the court system or have some kind of courtroom element to it. And I did that just to basically set myself apart from other true crime podcasts. So I did that early on. And at the time, I really didn't know the exact format of what I wanted to do. I knew that I loved watching trials. I knew that I wanted to cover those in my podcast. I had a, you know, a bunch in my head that I thought would make for great episodes. But I initially thought that Court Junkie would, would be more of like a long form podcast. So my first two episodes are actually about the same case. There was, um, I had seen it initially on Dateline, the Melissa Kaluzinski case. She was um, a 22-year-old daycare worker, and she was accused of um, murder. One of the, there was a 16-year-old child that died in her care. And, you know, after a very extensive interrogation, she said that, like, she, she got frustrated and she threw him on the ground. And that was basically, it was like one of those things where if you watch the interrogation, it's kind of sketchy. Like the, the investigators basically do the motion first and then she kind of mimics it. I think, I think she was there for like 18 hours. Um, her family had since said that she had like a lower, um, you know, understanding level, a lower IQ. And um, so basically it was like a very high-profile, popular case in the area. It was taking place about an hour and a half away from where I lived. And she had already been tried and convicted. She had already been, you know, sitting in prison for a number of years, but there was post-conviction hearings that were coming up. And so I decided to, I was like, that that's actually a really good case that I want to cover. And so I went to the hearings and, you know, I brought like my phone. I had gotten like this little portable, like, little microphone um, you know, a little um, a notebook. I was like furiously writing down everything that was going on. Um, I sat next to Aaron Moriarty, which was like, you know, a dream of mine. I like, couldn't believe that. I met the family, um, you know, and really just kind of got into it. And then I did two episodes on it. And then the case kind of stalled because then you, you know, you have to wait months before a decision is is going to be reached. Right. And so then I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do now? I've just, you know, I'm releasing these two episodes and then I have no, I had no plan after that. Right. The plan was to stay with that case through as a long form deal. Yeah, basically. That was like kind of my idea at first, or at least to get a couple more episodes out of it. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do a different case each time. And so I, um, you know, looked at a lot of the cases that I had already covered, like Gabriel Johnson. He was a a missing child, but the mother had been charged with kidnapping the Richardson family murders in Canada. And I like, you know, and I and and I started like reaching out to people like close to the case. Like I got uh, the detective from the Richardson family murders to talk to me and I got that. I did a wrongful conviction case kind of early on. uh, Christine Bunch. I don't know if you're familiar with her. But she basically spent 22 years, I believe it was, in prison after, um, in the, what is it, the 1980s, I think it was. She was living in her house, and her house was, um, she woke up in the middle of the night to her house being on fire. And she had her son in the house with her. I think he was about six years old at the time, and he did not make it. And so she's in the hospital, and, you know, she's got smoke inhalation. She, you know, had made, like, this kind of harrowing escape out of her, you know, bedroom window. And the police basically accused her of having started the fire. They said it was arson. You must have done it. She went to trial, was convicted, spent 22 years in prison, only to find out, you know, later on that due to advances in fire science, which I'm sure you know all about, um, that it wasn't arson at all, that they think it was an electrical fire that started above her son's bedroom. Um, So I did like a two-part episode with her, and she was like telling me all about that. And the interesting thing about her case that I thought was that she was saying that, and this was in Indiana, and she was saying when she was released, you know, she, because she was exonerated, there was no program set up for her. If she was out on parole, they have certain things where like they help you, you know, create a a resume. 
They help you find a job and things like that. When you're exonerated, and this was back then, um, they didn't have anything for her. So she was kind of like just put out there on her own and she hadn't, you know, been in the real world for years and years. So I thought that was a pretty interesting case. Sorry if I just rambled yeah. on. No, no, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's I think that true crime podcasting has has helped that exact situation a lot over the years because there's so much more awareness, especially in the wrongful conviction space to where there's now like people and organizations that are that are set up and advocating to help people make those transitions out because yeah back back in the, especially like the 80s 90s even early 2000s like if someone did get out it was like hey they got out and they open the gate and they walk out and then that's it and a lot of right. times you know if it's been 20 years who's there to who's left there to meet them when they walk out right and a, and a lot of times you hear of these wrongful conviction stories and you hear when they're exonerated and it's like oh happy day it's great you know but you mm -hmm. really don't think of like okay then now they have to live the rest of their life and they have to you know, right. be they have to adjust again to the real world and then they have to deal with what happened to them. And there's like all these things that happen afterwards that, you know, maybe the media doesn't necessarily cover because the story ends there. They're exonerated and that's, you know, mm -hmm. happy day and everybody can move on. But, yeah, I think it's interesting to, to look at the the after effects as well. Yeah, it's a great case study of the, of of that. That's some, something someone should do a podcast on is just is just tracking people after their wrongful conviction or you know after their exonerations yeah especially like when you get in those kinds of years like 20 years that was you know ed eights when we got him out he he he'd been in for 20 years and it's like you don't realize the world is completely different than you know there was no cell phones there was no internet there was none of these things when he goes in and he right. comes out and everything i remember i walked into a walmart with him and the self-checkout blew his freaking mind oh wow <laughs> he's just like whoa what like he's like yeah. i gotta i'm like yeah he's like but i don't work here i'm like you know we, that's what we should all be saying <laughs> like, <laughs> know, he's like why do i gotta do this <laughs> you know i, I noticed that like in, in your a lot of your episodes you have a because you're you're a short form podcast but you do it very differently than most people like the the research and the interviews you know most short form true crime podcasts are kind of doing internet research and telling a story yeah. And and yours, you know, you you hear a lot of interviews, you hear a lot of courtroom audio. Like what is your 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 prep process like? Are you do are you filing open records requests or oh, yeah. or like is it Oh, so you're you're doing all that. So you must God, you must be organized like a mother. Like how far <laughs> like how far ahead are you to be doing these like one-off episodes and file open records requests? Like it's, like how far ahead are you? What's your what's your prep process like? You know, so it's changed a lot over the years. So initially I was bi-weekly. So I had two weeks in between, you know, an episode. And it, it yeah, I, I file I, I'll file the FOIA request. I actually have uh paralegal who I work with. And uh -huh. he basically does all of that for me, which is great. So I'll, I'll send him a list of cases each month. Like, these are the cases that I'm interested in. Can you see what you can get for me um, okay. on those? So, you know, that kind of like sends them off. A lot of times it takes a long time during COVID, took even longer. Mm -hmm. So I kind of expect to not hear from that for a while. Uh, one of my other sources of information, I, I partner with Law and Crime. And they basically live stream trials all across the country. So I have access to mm -hmm. their pretty extensive trial library and they're adding new trials to it all the time. So I will myself, you know, watch a whole trial, take very detailed, copious notes, pull audio clips from there. So I'll do that. I do have with my partnership with Law and Crime, one of their producers also writes for me. So she does exactly what I do there, um, and she submits about two articles for me a month, two scripts for me a month. And then uh -huh. I also have, um, right now it's about two to three other writers that I work with, um, journalists actually, who will go out and kind of chase a story as well. So like we'll like work on a pitch idea together and say like, okay, like this is great. Like let's see what court documents you know we can get from it. Let's see what interviews we can secure and like that kind of thing. So in addition to me doing my own episodes, I then have some other writers who are doing the legwork then too. And then, you know, eventually as I get a lot of these FOIA requests back, it's like, okay, we got this one back and we can put this one on the calendar. So it is definitely chaotic. And um, there's some times where, and I'm usually about a month out schedule wise, mm -hmm. um, but there's definitely some times where it's, it's been very very close you know where i'm like i don't right. know if gore junkie's gonna have an episode next week you know but <laughs> somehow i it, it manages so 
that's amazing like that you've put that team together how how odd is that for you so back in 2016 you're working in this in, the, in this law office and you're doing marketing and stuff and now you are producing this podcast and managing this whole yeah. team of people that are putting it together like when did you make the transition to where this was full time like because i mean that's a You've done better. I'm just literally now. I have six years in. I've started like I need like Erica, our our, our, our production manager here for Truth yeah. and Binge, and I have now have a research team for Truth and Justice. I've never. I'm just like okay, maybe I should. And, and it's from these interviews. I'm like, oh, what the fuck? Everybody else has got. <laughs> People, You're like, like I'm the sucker all, here. <laughs> yeah, I thought we were all doing this on our own. What's going on? <laughs> but but so what was when did you decide to go like full time and then and like were there were there step step were people coming to you? How did you end up with this team that's now producing this amazing podcast? Yeah. So I so first of all, my goal in doing this, it started off obviously as like my passion, but I knew I wanted to try to turn it into a career if possible. Mm-hmm. So that was like my end goal. And so initially when I started it in 2016, I decided to get really scrappy and go with a fake it till you make it kind of thing. So right mm-hmm. out of the gate, I found um, a local producer and I, and I you know, would record in GarageBand and then I'd send the files over to him so that he could equal out the volume and the levels and like add the music mm-hmm. and like make it, you know, sound nice. And because I figured if I do that, like it'll sound really professional and it'll seem like there's more than just me working on everything. You know what I mean? Right. And so and even like with with advertisements, I got really scrappy with that. And there is a local company here called Lifeway. And I approached them and took all of my analytics for my website, for my social channels. And remember, my website had been up since 2013. Sure, um, yeah. so, so I took all of that to them and was like, hey, I'm starting this podcast. Um, here's the reach that I think I can get. Um, you know, do you want to advertise? You know, I'll I'll run an advertisement on my podcast for like ten episodes if you give me you know X amount of money. And they agreed, and I was absolutely shocked. And in my mind, I was like, okay, well, I just bought myself another month or two of working on right. these freelance gigs and the podcast. So I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I've got you know, I, I bought myself some time. And so that was at the end of 2016, I believe. I started in August. So this was like at the end of 2016. And then by April, I reached out to Midroll and they ended up taking me on. So then they agreed to like book my ads. And so that was a huge step up. So then I was actually like starting to make some money um, Mm -hmm. on the podcast. And I was still doing everything all by myself. And then in it was basically my partnership with Law and Crime, which was uh, 2019, I believe. And basically, I reached out to them. Um, it's owned by Dan Abrams, and Dan Abrams, just from mm-hmm. you know when I was younger, was always somebody that like I you know looked up looked up to. And so we reached out to him, and you know we're like, hey, you've got this Law and Crime company where you're, you know, live streaming trials. I have this podcast and, you know, I'm covering trials. I think there's like some sort of synergy there. Maybe we can work together. And so, you know, we hopped on a call with them and within like a week, we had like a contract together. And so I get access to all of their extensive trial library, their legal experts, uh, a producer writes, um, you know, a couple of scripts for me a month. And so it like works out really well. And once I kind of got in the groove with them and was like, oh, okay, like the, you know, having another writer write scripts for me, although it was very odd, I was like, okay, I think I can, I think I can do this, you know? And so then I started, I think I put it, um, an ad up in like journalismjobs.com because obviously like I went to school for journalism. I have tons of respect for journalists. You know, they can chase a story. They they have no problems doing interviews. Like, their writing's really great. Like, it's really a great synergy. And so, um, yeah, now I've got, like, two or three. I added, like, a couple writers to the team, like, one by one. You know, I'd kind uh-huh. of, uh, what I would do is I would pay them to write, like, a sample script kind of thing, like a mini episode that I would put right. up on Patreon. And so I would pay them for that. And then if I like liked the way that they if I thought that there was good, you know, a good connection there, then I would hire them on as not a full time, but, you know, every four to six weeks or so to turn in a script. So it was really hard to give up. Yeah, it was really hard to give up like that, um, like the writing piece of it. And even now, 
I will say that when I release an episode that someone else has written, I have way more anxiety putting that out there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because like when you're doing it yourself, you know all the ins and outs. You have you Mm -hmm. have watched that excruciatingly painful DNA testimony. You know what I mean? You like like you're confident in everything. So with this, there's definitely a trust element there. I do fact check and I do, you know, the editing process does take a while, but it's definitely helped speed things along for sure, being able to delegate. That's awesome. I can't I I, I can't imagine someone writing for me and i'm learning that i've had a lot of like just just about all of kind podcasters out there a lot of them are doing that but it's it's so cool because like i've listened to several of your episodes and like knowing that 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 some of those episodes you wrote and some different people wrote they all seem to capture your voice that there's a synergy there with all of them yeah well what an amazing team yeah, no, it's it's been so great. And I did go through some writers that, you know, definitely wasn't, you know, a good fit. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, everything, the, the ones that I have now, I'm like really super confident in. I'm so grateful to them. Everybody gets writing credit. So I'm not like trying to pretend like I wrote everything. And I do mm-hmm. have a really heavy hand when it comes to editing, I will say. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I switch things around, you know, like if I think like, okay, maybe I want to tell the story better this way. Um, but like the, the bones of everything is at least there, you know what I mean? So it would be like your research team kind of taking all of their research and putting it together and telling a story and then giving it to you. And then you're like, oh, okay, like this sounds great. Maybe I'd move this here and maybe I would do that. So it's not that dissimilar. You could make that step. You could, you could take that leap. The the trick, the tricky part on truth and justice is, you know, the whole thing is that it is investigative. And my, I tell people all the time, like I learn more, like the investigative uh, uh, progress that we make in a case usually comes when I'm writing the episode, mm. like as you know, because because I because I get going and and you know, I'll be covering whatever, like the DNA testimony or something, and then they'll say something, and I'm like, well, wait a minute, but how does that jive with what this person said? And then I'm going back and checking them, and then checking that, and next thing I know, I've gone down this rabbit hole, it's Thursday night, I've got four hours before I gotta get the script out, and I'm still like, jam- <laughs> but like, that's where I like make the connections. Yeah. Uh, but it's, but it's amazing to me, everybody that's been able to do it, and you just, you just, Miley Cyrus, the whole pod, you just came in like a wrecking ball, and <laughs> just from, from day, from day one, and oh. it just like went right after, right after the advertisers, right after the producer, and started putting out great content right away. Well, thank you. I guess we should we should roll into this case. It's it's one I just listened to. Uh, you had two episodes on this one. It's the case mm. of Henry Segura, who was convicted of murdering his whole family, right? Four members right. of his family. It, it just it, it, the the murders happened in 2010, but he wasn't convicted until 2019. There's a mistrial. Super fascinating case. Not too often you see a case where someone else confessed to the murder at the trial and the defendant was still convicted of it. So do you you want to give us the the basics of this one? Wild. So this one, first of all, my mind was blown the more I learned about this case. And even just looking at the bare bones of it, the fact that a 27-year-old mother and her three little kids, she had two six-year-old twin daughters and a three-year-old son were brutally mm-hmm. murdered in, in their home in in Tallahassee, Florida. The fact that this wasn't all over the news like blows my mind. Yeah. It was big in Tallahassee, but like why wouldn't this be everywhere? I mean, it was it was it's such a right. horrific murder, a mother and her three young children. I mean, I just couldn't I couldn't believe that when I came across it and I came across it in Law and Crimes Trial Library, I could not believe mm-hmm. that I had never heard of it before. So I started watching the trial and I watched the prosecutor's opening statements. And I'll, I'll never forget, it was 34 minutes long, very succinct, very, you know, we've got basically they're accusing Henry Segura, um, who was had an on again, off again type relationship with Brandy Peters, who is the 27 year old mother who was killed. And he was the father of the three year old son. He was also married. So he had he carried on this extramarital relationship with Brandy and a lot of other women as well around uh-huh. this like kind of same time. So, again, going into it, you know, not the best guy, um, I guess you could say. And so they the prosecutors say that he's the one who did it. They say that he owed 
her about $20,000 in child support that he didn't want to pay. He was about to lose his driver's license. He was about to, you know, get it taken away, you know, get his um, his wages garnished and that kind of thing. And um, so they basically they found his what was likely his DNA in the bathtub, which is where, unfortunately, the children were found. Their bodies were found. And so, you know, when I'm listening to the opening statements to the prosecution, I was like, okay, like maybe I won't really cover this on Court Junkie if it's like that much of an open and shut case. You know, I'm like, maybe there's no like really interesting legal angle here. It's just this tragic story of this man who owed child support and he, you know, wiped out his family. And then I listened to the defense's opening statements and I like my jaw was just on the floor by the end of it because they say that. It wasn't Henry. Henry's innocent. That it was actually a cartel hit. And they have somebody who confessed to it that was going to testify at this trial. So basically, he went to trial first in 2017. It was a mistrial. And I I believe it was the jury was heavily in favor of acquittal or more so in favor of acquitting him. They went to trial again a couple of years later. And the defense attorney, for some reason, his name is Nate Prince, and he's he's a seems to be a really great attorney, though. Um, but he decided to instead of a twelve person jury to um, put the case in front of a six person jury, and that may have been a lot of people say that that may have been what was ultimately the reason why Henry was convicted because it's I guess it's easier to convince six people rather than twelve of someone's guilt. But anyway, going back to when I listened to the defense's theory, you know, they had somebody else that confessed to the crime. And then there's certain things like there was a spade or a shovel that was found next to Brandy's body in her bedroom, which is very weird. No blood was on it. So it wasn't a murder weapon. It was just there next to the body. And they called a cartel expert who said, like, yeah, that's a that's a spade. That's a calling card that the cartel would leave. There was unidentified DNA at the scene, including female um, DNA under her fingertips. And the cartel expert said, yeah, oftentimes the cartel, if they're planning on killing a female, they'll send a female to the door so that she feels more comfortable opening the door. And there were um, foot impressions there that didn't belong to Henry. And there's just all of these things. And in addition to that, so the guy who confessed His name is James Carlos Santos, and he said that Brandy actually worked for him and that she was a drug mule. They would go and they would pick up um, drugs from the border and then, you know, she would deliver them. And he said that Brandy stole money from them, about $90,000 worth, money and drugs. And so he had no choice because he brought her into it to have her killed. So he said that he ordered a hit. Um, He was in prison at the time, but he said he ordered the hit from prison. And he like gave the names of like the people who did it. And um, so, yeah, it was a very fascinating case. I feel like it is the definition of reasonable doubts. I mean, the fact that they're able to put all of these other scenarios and then they actually have, you know, evidence that kind of looks like it could go along with it. There is no evidence that Brandy ever worked for the cartel or anything like that. But interestingly enough, she was receiving um, letters from James Carlos Santos when he was in prison, very threatening letters. And on the day she died, she basically went over to, or the day before she died, she went over to her friend's house and brought one of those letters and was super freaked out about it. And she said she was fearing for her life. You know, so it was like, there's so many things about this case, so many twists and turns, and it's just absolutely blows my mind that it doesn't get more attention. Yeah, I had never heard of the case until I, I listened to your episode on it or the two episodes on it. But yeah, it's it's it's, it's shocking to me. Like I, I now you've seen the I've, I haven't watched the trial. Obviously, you've seen yeah. you've seen the whole trial. Every but it's like bit of it. <laughs> yeah, and you've got so you've got this guy, which is also shocking to me that a cartel member would not only confess that he ordered the hit, but then also name the people who did it. That seems like a no no in that uh, you know in that group. Right. But but there's evidence. It seems like there's evidence to support it. There's all this unknown DNA. The I read that the the that there was like there was a bunch of unidentified footprints, mm-hmm. which indicating that there were multiple people there. The the whole spade thing that that how a jury could hear that and still be like, 
nope, I think he did it. Yeah. And I mean, I always say I have no idea. Like, I never give my opinion in any of my episodes or anything like that. Uh-huh. And to this day, I really don't know if if he did it or not. I wasn't there. You know what I mean? Right. It, it's possible that he did. Maybe he even likely did. I know a lot of people feel that way. But I just feel like if I were on a jury, there's no way I could convict him. So I always feel like with these cases, and especially when you're when you're watching these trials, there's like two questions I like to ask typically at the end of my episodes. And one of them is, do you think he's guilty? Like, do you do you agree with the verdict? And then another one is, or no, I should say, do you think he's guilty? And then another one is, do you agree with the verdict? Would you have been able to convict him? Because I think those are two mm-hmm. different things. I think you can right. say, you can say, yeah, I, I definitely, I, I think he did it. I think he did it. But then I'm not 100% sure. You can have reasonable mm-hmm. doubt and you can say, I don't think the prosecution proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt. So even though I, I think he likely may have done it, I'm not positive. So I would have voted to acquit. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like the factual guilt compared to legal guilt. We're, oh, yeah. You know, it, it's, it, like, it's like it seems like he probably did it, but there's definitely the, the state did not overcome this reasonable doubt of someone else confessing to it at the trial. Right. It's like your personal feelings about it. You know what I mean? And like I said, you know, he was married. He had multiple, you know, affairs. He lied to police. He basically said when they first interviewed him, you know, he was like, oh, yeah, here, take my cell phone. I was home all day. I think I left to go to McDonald's, but that was it. Take my cell phone. You know, that'll show everything, you know, that kind of thing. And then they learned that he had a second cell phone. And in the second cell phone, he has communications with Brandy in it. Um, they they discover that he was there that night. And then at trial, he, he tries to explain that away. And he says that he was there that night. They were still sleeping together. You know, he went there. He had sex with her, but he left. And so he says that the murders occur. The, the murders occurred after he left. So, I mean, like I said, it's he definitely could have done it. I, it's it's. You know, it, in my mind, I kind of feel like. He did, but I, you know, I, I waver a lot. So if I were a juror, there's no way I could have voted to to convict him. What do you think? Do you have an opinion on on what you think swayed the jury? Like what 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 do you, was there any element that you think really led them to convict, even in light of the other reasonable doubt evidence that was presented? Yeah, I think that there were credibility issues, obviously, with James Carlos Santos. He's not the most reliable guy. And so when he's standing up there on the stand, you know, and other things came out about him, too, like he had also falsely admitted to other crimes that he did not do. And, you know, so it's they probably felt conflicted and probably maybe tossed out his testimony, didn't really find him credible. Um, Maybe they wrote off like the spade as kind of being a coincidence or whatever. And they just thought like Henry had the motive, the means, the opportunity He's not a likable man. I mean, this is not someone who's sitting up there, you know, who's never doesn't have any kind of criminal history, who, you know, is is this very likable person. And there was even this moment during the trial where he even snapped at the judge um, because the judge. Yeah, he, he was going back and forth with the prosecutor and, you know. He was going back and forth with her and he was just getting super frustrated and the judge, you know, kind of shushed him. And he was like, I'm a grown man. And he got really, you know, kind of upset that mm-hmm. the judge was even shushing him. And, you know, another thing I think that the prosecution did that was really smart was they had their female prosecutor um, cross-examine him. Because I think he was a known misogynist. I mean, he definitely right. had issues with women. And so here you had this very powerful woman up there questioning him and grilling him on things and I, I don't think he he handled that very well so i don't think he came off as very likable at all whereas you know you think of like a casey anthony type of defendant you know where she's like sitting there in the de- you know in the defense table i think i read that they like lowered her seat to make her look even like shorter and right you know so they may, may have felt sympathy for her and they definitely didn't feel that i don't think for henry segura yeah, and I wonder how the you know it's it's interesting just over the years looking at like statistics. The I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but it's it's a known thing in the criminal justice world that women who had in some kind of infidelity are 
convicted of those of of those violent crimes and murders like like a massive amount disproportionately to men that that the the jury will see oh well she was cheating on her husband so she must be guilty so i'm curious if that played in this case with him where it's like you know you're an asshole you were cheating on your your husband but it is an interesting statistic that juries tend to hold that against women way more than they do against men yeah that's really interesting i hadn't heard that before but i could see it yeah yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. You mentioned the the case. Um, I can't remember her name. The the woman who was exonerated with the arson. I did. I, yeah, I, Christine Bunch. Yeah, uh, Bunch. That case is another example. Women also, when it comes to child murders, the in the types of murders that are like, was it an accident or was it a murder? If if it's a woman, if it's the mother that was like caring for the child at the time, they yeah. get convicted at a massively higher rate than the men it's like it's this weird thing in the jury where they're like well you're a you're a mom so you, you should have known better interesting where they'll let the dead yeah that that goes with kids that are um like left in cars that yeah was one um i don't know if you ever heard the breakdown podcast but they uh you know there was are you one kidding? fantastic podcast oh yeah and that season yeah. where they had the the kid that was left in the car which was just mm-hmm. heartbreaking but that like they went through all those statistics and it's like you know if a man forgets his kid in the backseat of the car and the kid dies it's something like 80% of the time they get acquitted, but it's like, oh, it's, wow. it's the flip flop if it's a woman. Interesting. It's like 80% of the times they're convicted. But then I wondered, do you know what the statistics would be for like spousal killings? So like, for, you know, like um, a man is accused of murdering his wife versus a woman who's accused of murdering his wife. I feel like maybe the jury might have more sympathy for... The female in that situation. I don't know the I th- statistics behind I think that. They, but. I think they do, as long as there's not infidelity. And I and I mm. and I'm, I don't know the statistics, but if you, yeah. but the actual numbers. But yeah, so so it's in those cases where there's a spousal murder that if you know the if the wife is killed and the, it's found out that the husband was having an affair, it's not held against them as badly as if the husband's killed and you find out the wife was having an affair, they'll throw the book at her every time. Oof, interesting. Weird that it's amazing that we still haven't, you know, after all the work that has been done, we still haven't gotten that out of our system, the the sexism and stuff that goes on in our yeah, criminal justice system. Definitely. One of my girlfriends brought up an interesting point, and I don't I don't think there would be any way to do it. But she was like, you know, what if all like you never saw all any of like the witnesses or you never saw right. like the defendant? You know what I mean? Kind of like a blind courtroom kind of thing. Mm hmm. You know what I mean? So any kind of biases you had going into it, you know, wouldn't be there. Yeah. And what if what if uh, uh, lawyers were not allowed if there were no I I can never pronounce this word peremptory strikes of jurors? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, because if they went through voir dire or voir dire, somebody's going to correct me, depending what part of the country they're from. Um, But, you know, if they went through that and you could only remove jurors for cause. I wonder how things would change too, because there's, I just had a friend, actually our producer's wife was on, um, called up for jury duty the other day, but it was like, you know, wh- whatever, I don't remember what the scenario was. I think it was a black male defendant and the defense was just trying to get rid of all the white ladies out of the, you know, out of the jury yeah. uh, instead of just like looking for, for cause. Right. Uh, but yeah, that would be amazing if the, you know, if you couldn't see them, cause I hear all the time, I had somebody I interviewed. This week, I don't remember, one of the episodes that we just interviewed for said they had watched a trial and they're like, I just, you know, I don't know. I just looked at him and he was so smug during the trial and his reactions to what they were saying. I just, uh, and you hear that all the time from jurors. It's like, you know, that the lawyer probably told, you know, if he's staring at his feet, it's because the lawyer told him to stare at his feet and, you know, they told him not to react. But people are judging on that stuff all the Mm -hmm. time. Yeah. So I guess it would be beneficial to not see the defendant. Although there would be certain situations you would need to obviously know um, if they were physically capable of carrying out such a murder. Right. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I, that's why I mean. I don't think you could ever actually implement such a thing, but it's just an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I can't imagine a scenario where it would work, <laughs> but I, if, I wonder if it would change things. If you have no idea their, their race, their gender, you know, whatever the case, you know, whatever the case is, and you just got rid of some of those biases, which. Obviously, wouldn't it? It's, that's our utopian court junkie world. Uh, where <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this goes, right? Exactly. Um, and with that, I, th- I think we're going to wrap things up. Uh, check out it was was episode one seventeen. Yes, was the Henry Segura case yes. and one eighteen. 
Um, but all the episodes are amazing. Uh, th- this, this, this is not your typical short form podcast. I mean, these are, as you heard, they're well researched. There's open records requests. This is like, uh, fully reported on stories and, and well researched every single episode. So check it out. Her name is Jillian Jalali. I pronounced that right, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's really just, it, it's my married name, but it's funny because it's, it's literally the letters of my first name just jumbled up. For my last name. Right. Oh, it really is. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> it's like a cartoon character, right. but we'll go with it. <laughs> <laughs> so there it is. That's Jillian Jalali. The podcast is called Court Junkie. Check it out. If you haven't already, it'll definitely be your next big true crime binge. Thanks so much, Jillian, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.